0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Paula and I hope you are all having a fantastic new year. We have been busy working to bring you some fantastic shows. This past Tuesday, we released our 14th installment of Unresolved. This is a collaboration between Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and Ohio.com that covers the cold cases in the Akron area, so be sure to check out that episode before this one. If you go to OhioMysteries.com, you can also click on the episode list. And you can see all of our work that we have done with Ohio.com and the Akron Beacon Journal. We have the three-part series on the 1979 murder of Ricky Baird and Mary Leonard called Elusive Justice. There is also another three-part series that we did together called Exhumed, and that covered our recent Summit County exhumations. So please be sure to check those out. And now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time to dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Slice.
1: Hi, everybody. In the 21st century, we are well aware of the arts of the scam. There are public service announcements year-round warning people of the many ways people are trying to get you to give up your money. But scams are nothing new. As a matter of fact, it was a scam on a grand international scale that led to the founding of Gala the county seat of Gallia County along Ohio's south-central border. In 1790, a group of immigrants that historians have come to call the French 500 arrived on the northern shore of the Ohio River to form a uniquely French city. But the land deeds they had purchased from a salesman in Paris were worthless. This band of artisans and noblemen and white collar professionals, most of them lacking basic survival skills, found themselves trying to start a new life in a primitive wilderness, living with risks that ranged from disease outbreaks to Indian attacks. But with the help of benevolent pioneers, and a U.S. Congress that desperately wanted its first Western Territory to succeed, they persevered, even though, for most of them, it meant succeeding somewhere else. So, as we start a new year, what could be more appropriate than a tale about people beginning a new life? This is the story of the French 500. Prior to the Northwest Territory being formed in 1787, the United States was a collection of 13 independent, fiercely proud states. They mostly ruled themselves. There was little in the way of federal legislation. Very little for Congress to do but sit around in the Capitol and debate. The Northwest Territory, our country's first move to acquire new land, would be their first real effort to build something together. Gallup Police didn't exist yet, but it would become part of the vanguard of America's advancement into the wilderness. After Congress surveyed and divided the land that would one day become the state of Ohio into townships, most of the land was sold to companies and groups of investors. They would buy a township or two or more at a time, Subdivided and sell tracts to families and individuals, but that made it a system ripe for abuse and some very shady dealings. Enter the Sciota Company, an American colonel and former Continental Congressman named William Duer, helped organize the company with the intent of selling land in the Ohio Valley to foreign markets. If America was going to grow. It needed new blood, not just relocating former colonists. So the company set up in Paris, France, where people were searching for a refuge. They had been devastated during the French Revolution and were eager at a chance for a new life. The Scioto Company sent its agent, Joel Barlow, to market the American dream to minor aristocrats, merchants, artisans, and craftsmen. Barlow, more of a poet than a salesman, hired a Scotsman named William Playfair to charm potential buyers. Playfair dazzled the Parisians with a description of a beautiful land in a temperate climate. He spoke of trees that produced sugar and plants that grew candles, exaggerations of the maple tree and cattails. To the war-weary French, the New World sounded more than just a land of liberty. It sounded like Eden. At a price of $1.20 an acre, Playfair and Barlow sold 150,000 acres. The buyers were quite excited to begin their journey, but things took time back then. Many of them traveled to the French port at Havre de Grace where some families waited weeks for their transportation to arrive. And when it did arrive, it was a fleet of questionable vessels. The first boat to set sail in February of 1790, carrying cargo exclusively destined for Ohio, ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic. There was no storm, no collision. It simply sprung a leak crew and passengers took turns working the pumps until they were nearly spent from exhaustion and despair. But when hope had been all but abandoned, an English ship appeared and brought every passenger safely aboard. Not a life was lost, though many lost everything they owned. The French headed for Ohio on different ships, leaving at different times from different ports, one of the earliest trips was made by the Patriot. It left with 215 Frenchmen listed on the manifest, but when they arrived in Alexandria, Virginia, 218 people disembarked. The extras were two babies born on the journey and a stowaway. The stowaway, 26-year-old Francois Valadin was sold to a hotel proprietor in Alexandria, where he had to work for one year to pay for his passage. Then, when he was freed, he went to Gala where he lived to become one of the wealthiest men in Ohio. Alexandria, Virginia was where all the French land buyers rendezvoused so they could travel overland together, and it was in Alexandria where the first arrivals got some devastating news. First, they learned that they would have to wait until the fall to continue. The colony in Marietta, Ohio, which was to prepare everything they would need to get through their first winter, had been ravaged by smallpox. Because so many people were sick or dead, they couldn't gather their harvests, so food was in short supply. That was not the worst disappointment. The settlers also quickly learned that the Sciota Company had sold them their deeds under false pretenses. The company had never owned the land and had gone bankrupt without completing their option to buy it from the Ohio Company. The land deeds in the hands of the French were worthless. Americans were not unsympathetic to the plight of the French. Many folks rallied to help them get through their first few months and Rufus Putnam of the Ohio Company, which actually owned the land, he hired a crew to build about a hundred rude huts to serve until they could establish themselves. The site of those former cabins is the present day. Gallipolis City Park. They didn't have to go to Ohio anymore, I should note. Indeed, in Alexandria, they were encouraged to consider other options. But most of them had already spent a year or more dreaming of this new French city on the Ohio, and they were not ready to give up. So, about six months later, they completed the journey they took wagons to Pittsburgh, then loaded onto flatboats for the 200-mile trip down the Ohio River. They referred to their flatboats as arcs. On October the 17th, 1790, the first of the Frenchmen landed at the mouth of the Chickamauga Creek. They had plenty of reason to feel despair, and yet they celebrated That first night, they pulled out their powder wigs and musical instruments and threw a ball as if they were back at the French court. To keep up their spirits, they made the festive gathering a weekly tradition.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news...
1: The second order of business was to name the settlement. They agreed on Gallipolis, the city of the Gauls. It was also the first Roman Catholic settlement of the West. The Church in Paris had sent a bishop and several priests to help watch over this flock in the New World. It was quite a significant move. There were only a couple of dozen Catholic priests in all of America at this point. Now, the gay Parisians were very different from the typical, stoic, rugged pioneers. One account said the Puritans who came from Marietta to teach the new immigrants how to survive their challenging environment were scandalized by their frivolity and laughed at their childish antics. The French, on the other hand, took credit for making the Puritans loosen up a bit. I love the way this strange settlement was described in a 1919 Catholic Review article. Nowhere in all the annals of American colonies is there offered a sharper contrast of light and shade, in fact, or in symbol, than here, where old nobles and counts with their gentle ladies, right out of the most brilliant court the world has ever known, are translated if by some bad magic, to the uncouth haunts of savage men and beasts. But the Paris folk were truly grateful for their Marietta mentors. They had originally brought with them across the pond a good number of laborers, the kind of people who knew how to fell a tree or build a cabin or work a farm. But during that long delay at Alexandria the laborers found other, brighter opportunities. The immigrants were going to have to learn how to do all those pioneer tasks by themselves. Now, the town went about filling roles and creating the economy that is necessary for a successful village. They elected justices of the peace, set up farmland, and opened businesses that would make the most of their strengths. As it turned out, Their gentler skills were a welcomed commodity. Within a couple of years, they had made their mark as a frontier community of artisans. In 1792, when the Moravian missionary John Heckewelder paid the town a visit, he described beautiful gardens, complimented a local watchmaker, and praised a stonemason and a glassblower whose works he had seen the town was also producing a much-sought-after peach brandy. Now, it was still the frontier, and there were risks that kept everybody on edge at first, including the threat of Indian attacks. Just two years before their arrival, a mineralogist named Anthony Sawgrain had visited the very site that would become Gallipolis and had been attacked by Indians. His companions were killed, He barely escaped with his life. But 1790 was on the tail end of those random, bloody attacks. By 1795, the Indian Wars were over, and a high tide of emigration moving into the Ohio Valley brought with it trade, prosperity, and the promise of a new era. The United States had something to gain by making sure the Northwest Territory settlements succeeded. They wanted it to grow into several new states. So, in 1795, five years after the French 500 had arrived, and while many of them were still struggling to save enough money to rebuy the land, the government stepped in and granted them 24,000 acres in what is now Scioto County with lengthy frontage along the Ohio River. This free land was called the French Grant, and all that the new homeowners needed to do was work the land for five years to get the title free and clear. Not everyone took advantage of it. Many remained in Gallipolis, committed to the community they had already started to develop. But 84 people claimed a share of the gift. Galapalisa's French population was decimated further when many families decided to try their luck in even more remote destinations. Within a decade, more than half of them had moved on, resettling from Canada to south of the Mexican border. Many felt pulled to that uniquely French region that would become the state of Louisiana. Slowly, the Catholic Church moved away as well. An account said when one priest left for St. Charles, Missouri, dozens of families followed him. That particular contingent, by the way, included none other than Daniel Boone. The historical account said this of that famous frontiersman, Cheated of his land claim at Boonville, Kentucky, he retired to a spot opposite Gallipolis. He used to hunt on the Raccoon Creek in Ohio, but when he learned that his friends were starting for Missouri, he determined to accompany them. He was welcomed and given a large tract of land. Eventually, there were no priests left in Gallipolis. One day, a Father Baden stopped into town on his way to Kentucky and found four babies in need of baptizing. Residents tearfully pleaded for him to stay, but he didn't. So, what was daily life like in the first years after the French 500 arrived? Here's part of a letter translated from one of them, a Mrs. Marist, sent to a friend in Paris in 1795. Apparently, this letter was accompanied by the present of a bison skin. Mrs. Marist wrote, Each colonist here owns 207 acres of land on the banks of the Ohio. We owe this present to the Congress. The country where we are has an abundance of all kinds of game. Wild turkeys especially are so numerous that Joseph, her son, in less than three months has killed more than 200. The turkeys weigh 16 to 18 pounds, some as much as 30 pounds. Joseph and Pierre do a lot of fishing as well, which brings variety to our menus. Besides turkey, there are lots of deer, bears, buffaloes, and doves. But since the streams are teeming with fish, we prefer that catch, as it is much easier. Joseph and Pierre have caught 12 fish in a single day. Each of these fish weighed 16 to 18 pounds. Some 50-pounders were caught, and even an 88-pounder. Felicity, that's her daughter is very well established, married to a 26-year-old man who comes from a good family, very clever and well-educated. Before the Revolution, he was an officer in the Queen's Regiment, where his father was a captain. Felicity's husband is a commander in our militia. He receives $40 a month. As for my husband, Marist, he is a soldier, as are his two sons, and between the three of them, they make $20 a month. Besides that, my husband is a baker, so we live a respectable and comfortable life. None of us has been ill since we left France. The climate here is not bad at all for us, although it is very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. Poverty does not exist here. Wine is in common, yet it can be obtained everywhere easily if you are willing to pay. What you get is wine from Madeira, it costs about half a dollar a bottle. Some of our colonists make wine and sell it for 4 shillings a gallon. We don't need to be afraid of the savages anymore. Peace was signed with them last month. Clothes are expensive here, but it doesn't bother us. People here dress informally. Felicity may have the pleasure of seeing you again soon, since her husband is thinking of going back to France to see his family. And since they own property there, they may stay. As for my other children, they have but one desire, to stay here. And my daughters often wish their cousins would come over too. Our crops are corn, wheat, melons, cucumbers in abundance, pumpkins, turnips, potatoes. One has trouble growing onions, but parsnips, carrots, beans, peas, leeks, and cabbages all do very well. Hard cider isn't expensive. Peach trees bear a lot of fruit, and fruit trees grow so fast that a peach stone planted in the ground will produce a tree in four years, which bears fruit as early as that fourth year. Peaches are most useful. They are made into brandy and a kind of wine. They are dried for the winter and cooked with a little maple sugar. They make excellent stewed fruit. So, who were the French 500? There has been a lot of work done over the years to try and identify them. In 1993, a French woman, Jocelyn Moreau Zanelli, did her college thesis on Gallipolis. She turned her work into a book, though unfortunately, it's in French and has not been translated. Zanelli identified several vessels that carried the French to America, but only two, the Patriot and the Liberty, had passenger lists that survived the years. The list not only included names and ages, but occupations. We learned they were woodcutters, clockmakers, doctors, lawyers, farmhands, tailors, and wigmakers, to name a few. In the end, she was able to compile a list of some 300 names. The identities of the other 200 are still a mystery. I've got one other historical account of Gala Police that I wanted to share. It appears to have been written in 1855 and is a delightful look at some of the colorful people in the settlement. It also expresses a longing that one day... The descendants of the French 500 who left the settlement might return to appreciate the sacrifices of their ancestors. Here's how it goes To the Americans, the greatest wonder in the colony is Monsieur Duthill, a farmer who always insists on giving too much of his wheat in every barter, lest he might get the better of any of his neighbors. Death itself will stand in awe of Jean-Baptiste Bertrand, who, even in the days of famine, will observe all the fasts of the Church and will see to it that even his grown offspring remain true to their faith. He will survive all the other men of Galapalese, reaching the age of 94 in 1855. Standing winsomely beneath the arches of the wide wilderness, one might hear the sweet Mademoiselle Vimont humming the strains of sacred anthems that she used to sing in the grand old Notre Dame of Paris. Here is an Evangeline for the poets. Little boys and girls of tenderest years playing in the bushes meet at times the glaring eyes of the Shawnees or of the Wildcats. Here are the babes in the woods for the painters. What is needed What we do not find is an individual, a man that towers above all the rest. There is no hero where all are brave. They stood together, and time has leveled down their graves to a common surface. With good and bad, civilized and savage, wise and frivolous, age and infancy, English and French, the romancer has materials galore for a story— By keeping close to the truth, it may one day resurrect the old French city and make it the term of pilgrimages for their descendants who are scattered today end-to-end across America like leaves that are blown by the blasts of October. Wherever the French 500 ended up, I trust that they did better than the man that scammed them. Two years after Gallipolis Police was settled, William Dewar, founder of the Scioto Company, was involved in the Panic of 1792. Actions by Dewar and his friends caused a run on the country's banks, the first of its kind. Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, if you became a fan of his after seeing the Broadway musical, saved the day successfully managing the crisis. But Dewar was done. He went bankrupt and was confined to a debtor's prison. Yes, back then, you could be imprisoned for being in debt. And debtor's prison is where he died in 1799. I wanted to thank Sarah, a native of Gallipolis, for suggesting this great piece of Ohio history. If you know some colorful history in your own hometown, preferably something that has a little mystery to it, Be sure to drop us a line at feedback at com.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.